You're listening to Unpaused, the podcast for women who want to reinvent their career after an extended break from work or mastermind a new one. It's impossible to mention India Hicks without acknowledging her pedigree as granddaughter of Lord Louis Mountbatten, last Viceroy of India, and his wife Edwina, Countess Mountbatten of Burma. Or perhaps you remember her as the daughter of the great English decorator David Hicks, or as one of Princess Diana's bridesmaids at her wedding to Prince Charles, India's godfather, in 1981. However you may have encountered her, India's accomplishments today are all the more remarkable in view of the life she might have led as a debutante, society beauty, mother of five, and mistress of any number of self-styled beautiful houses on an idyllic island in the Bahamas, all documented in the numerous illustrated books she's authored on her distinctive island style. In the last decade, India has recast herself initially founding a lifestyle business which, despite her best efforts, couldn't in the end be sustained. She was devastated by what she saw as personal failure and ignominy. Yet only weeks after announcing the demise of her business on Instagram, she turned without hesitation to take a different path after a Category 5 storm bore down and flattened her beloved island community. In the process, she found new purpose and fulfilment. She mobilised her brand, her influence, her connections and her hard-won business know-how, helping to marshal crucial resources to ease their suffering and begin the long process of rebuilding. She's now a director and board member of the Global Empowerment Mission and in recent months found herself in the war zone of central Ukraine, delivering aid and dispensing comfort to the distressed and displaced. It's a transformation that might never have happened, but perhaps there were good genes at work, passed on from her trailblazing grandmother, Edwina, who self-fashioned a similar humanitarian metamorphosis eight decades before. Here is a different take on the India Hicks story. Welcome, India, from Australia. I understand you're in the Bahamas where you live for most of the year. I have lived here for 26 years, um, made this my home and decided that we were going to take one day at a time. I, I'm, I re-met and fell in love with a man, but also a way of life um, and a nation of people who were completely at ease with themselves. What I love about the Bahamas is that beauty comes in all shapes and sizes and it's not one obvious way of looking at beauty. And I thought that was really wonderful when I first arrived here. The Bahamas is a Commonwealth country, so there are a lot of English laws and a lot of English traditions that linger on here. But we are quite close to Florida, which means that there's some American influences that have infiltrated. But uh, the Bahamians are a nation of very proud people and and they they got their independence in 67. We're about a 20 minute flight from Nassau or about an hour from Miami. Um, But the Bahamas is made up of a a lot, huge amount of tiny and larger islands. Um, And so when we say that we live on a family island, that indicates that it's not the main island. It's not Nassau um, or New Providence, that we're out on a smaller island. Where I live, Harbour Island, is often referred to as the jewel in the crown because it's very unique in the fact that the architecture dates way back to um, 18th century and beyond, because one of the first settlers came here to Harbour Island. And what I particularly love is that it has always been integrated. Black and white have always lived together. And now, um, more than ever, after COVID particularly, it's become very popular because it's 
it, it feels very close to America. It's got the same currency. It's easy to get in and out of. Um, and, and I think since COVID, it really harborized, become spectacularly popular. My children very much started school here. Um, there was a little teeny weeny schoolhouse down on the bay um, and they were one of the few foreign families who lived here a year round. And so they have a lot of very local Bahamian friends. I have five children, one of whom is Bahamian, and we adopted him uh, when he was 11. But he's been in our lives since he was two. So my family has been fully integrated uh, in many ways for a long, long time. And uh, going to school here, I think, was, the, was a very, very good beginning for the kids. Um, and then as they grew older, they went to boarding school in England, and now they're living lives overseas, although they all tend to come back. There's rather a lot of them coming back. A lot. <laughs> Sometimes I say, you need to go away again. <laughs> India, by contrast, to give some context to this story, um, you have famous grandparents, parents, a very famous godfather, and it's impossible to forget that you were bridesmaid to Princess Diana. And I know it's a very sort of complex web of life, but just a few words about where you sit in this very famous family. Well, I'm very proud to carry the name India. My grandfather was the last viceroy of India, and he was asked to give India their independence in 1947. Uh, my mother was out there with them at a very turbulent time. Um, you know, it was a country on the verge of civil war. It was a very difficult task that he was given. Um, really, it was a poison chalice that he was given because no one was ever going to do that um, without repercussions. Um, but my mother had an amazing 18 months living in India and she really, really fell in love with the country um, and found it very difficult actually coming back to England and, and settling back into a very traditional English life, having experienced that extraordinary part of history unfolding before their eyes. Um, I was the last grandchild, so as my grandfather was the last viceroy, I was given the name. Um, and my grandmother and grandfather were both um, spectacular characters. Um, one of my greatest regrets is that I never met my grandmother. I think she was a very difficult mother, but she was an extraordinary woman. That's Your mother is Lady Pamela Hicks, and you've done a podcast with her, which is very charming. How much do you think that this has shaped you, having these illustrious forebears? And, and to what extent, living in the Bahamas, does that give you the chance to separate yourself from this family and all of that goes with it in England? That's a very perceptive way of, of putting it because actually it, I think, you know, growing up in the shadow of, of very famous grandparents who did amazing things historically and within the family. Um, and then my mother married my father, David Hicks, who was a very great designer and did a lot of work out in Australia. But my father was a very flamboyant character and a lot was he was like a whirling dervish um, and there was always excitement and thrill around him but he too was a very tricky dad um, so I'm exceptionally close to my mother who is um, a remarkable character in the fact that she has always she's always been very forward thinking in the way that she sees life um, very modern in her thinking she's very progressive but she's always lived in the shadow of other people she was a lady in waiting to the queen and so she was obviously two steps behind the queen uh, being married to David Hicks, he was always in the forefront of everything and she always sat rather quietly in the background and being the daughter of very famous parents. So I think it's wonderful that she and I had the opportunity to do the podcast uh, because we really began to see her character, her story, which is actually very unique and very interesting 
in and of itself. Um, so I spend a lot of time with my mother. But I, I think growing up, it, it was quite difficult um, being, um, having come from an amazing family such as this. I'm very proud of it, but, but I did find that I wanted to make my own life and have my own voice and paint my own picture on my own blank canvas. And by moving to the Bahamas, I really was able to do that, to start completely new. When no one knew me, I had none of that background following me and I could be my own completely independent person. Um, of course, I slightly cheated in the fact that David actually was already living this. It had kind of been his idea, so I can't take full credit for bingo, I'm going to live in the Bahamas. But my father had built a very remarkable house on a neighbouring island called Windermere Island. So I had grown up coming to this part of the world, and we used to holiday out here, and he built this amazing house made from sand, the pink sand from the beach, and it was shaped as an Egyptian mausoleum. I decided that I was going to take a few months out, so I was living down on Windermere Island, somebody who had reminded me that David Flintwood was actually up on Harbour Island managing a small hotel. And so I came up to go diving here and one thing led to another. And four months later, I was pregnant. And so we decided to stay. And we said, we will take it one day at a time. And I've been here for 26 years. So I think that there was definitely a period in my life where I, I was keen to kind of really forge my own way and to have my own voice and not be always overshadowed by this family. I think I've always been fairly driven. Um, I've always wanted to make my own way, make my own money, make my own story, as I said. Um, and with that comes, you know, um, being an entrepreneur um, and making island life work for us in certain ways. And so we actually, um, invested, redecorated, remarketed a hotel here. Um, and then from that, then I did the book about island life. And then from that, I was able to tell other stories. And then from that, people said, would you like to design for us? And so I worked for Crabtree and Evening, which I think has quite a large following in Australia. And I did two wonderful collections for them. And I say wonderful um, because I loved working with a team and I loved getting into the design world and I loved working in product and fragrance and beauty. And, uh, and so we had a, a number of very successful years with Crabtree and Evelyn. And, and then I started doing jewelry design and then I did other things and I had a shop where I was buying the shop. So I've had a lot of different experiences in a lot of different arenas, but always within the design and creative world. And then somewhere along the line, I met a, a very influential man who said to me, you know what, it's wonderful that you're working for other people, but really you should be doing this for yourself. That, that is the key to it all. Um, and that is where, you know, you really can make a significant difference with a company of your own, in your own name. Um, and I got swept up in this idea and I knew my skill sets were within the design and understanding my audience, it was not within at the actual business side of it. So I partnered with two Germans who both had had experiences in the financial world and came with a lot of skills that I didn't have. And the three of us forged this company, which is called India Hicks Inc., and the idea was that we were going to sell lifestyle brands, everything that I knew I could do and design, everything from handbags to fragrance to beauty. And they had the idea that actually instead of selling this in the traditional way, we would sell it through a network of women at home. And really we tapped into a group of women who rather like myself had children who were growing up and they were less needed those early years. And actually these women were looking for something else in their lives. And we had six incredible years where we built this company and we really scaled it very, very quickly, which is probably one of the, the drawbacks um, in hindsight. 
We scale it very quickly. We have 5,000 ambassadors across America who sold the India Hicks collections, but really we were empowering them. They empowered me. And together the messaging was, you know, do this on your own terms and in your own way. And women really did. They had parties at home. They sold the collections. They started to do their own tax returns. They built swimming pools. They took their families on holidays. They were able to give back. We had a very philanthropic side of the business that was a big focus so that women felt that they were giving back to their communities and charities that meant things for them. Everything was golden. I made incredible friendships. We traveled. We laughed. We worked our asses off. I've never worked so hard in my life. And I utterly believed in the business. But as with so many startups, we began to fail on certain levels. And it's, again, only looking back do you recognize where you should have turned more quickly. But the balance wasn't quite there. We were selling through the heart of the home. And we were really like a super sophisticated Avon. But we needed to be building out our e-commerce. At that time, you couldn't really have one thing working without the other. Mm. To build, to come back and build uh, uh, the e-commerce the e to the standard that we needed. And by now we were really functioning at a very large scale with 5,000 ambassadors. Each one had their own microsite built on. I won't bore you with the terminology of it all and the details, but enough to say that we needed to go out and raise funds yet again. Um, and by then it was beginning to stall and, and our woman needed extra help in, in, in having to bring more people into their communities. Anyway, as, as many, many startup businesses do, we closed. Um, and looking back, I see how incredibly hard I worked, how heartbroken I was when the business did fail. But we were able to close what I like to say elegantly. And we were able to take the women on the journey with us for closing the business and understanding why we hadn't succeeded in certain ways. I don't regret a moment of it. And I love the case that we ran at. I loved everything that I learned along the way. But if I look back now and think, would I, could I have continued at that level? Probably not. I probably would have burnt out. And now I'm doing things that are filling me in completely different ways. I listened to a, an interview that you did actually with Tina Brown, which is actually how I came to get in touch with you, where each of you were talking about these incredibly heartbreaking uh, moments you'd had where you'd had to stop doing something that you loved and in the process um, come to terms with a sense of, if not failure, but I think women are so hard on themselves when something doesn't come to full fruition. They take it personally. Do you think now, and I want to talk about the interregnum, but do you think you've come to terms with it now? I think I'm just as hard on myself now as I was then. Um, I, you know, I always strive to try and be the best at whatever I'm doing. But I do recognise that I have to be in an environment that is comfortable to me and the one that I understand um, although that's not necessarily true, I do now push myself in other ways, like, you know, working for these two um, philanthropic companies now, it's, it's a very different journey and I'm learning still. And there are times where I don't feel necessarily comfortable with what I'm doing, but I'm pushing myself to do it. But I look back and I think it was an amazing chapter, but that's what it was. It was a chapter that opened and closed. And now I'm moving on. 
But one of the things that I am finding exciting about life, and that was a very humbling experience losing a big business. We were a big, small business, or we were a small, big business. But losing that was very humbling. Looking back, I, I learned so much through that as well. And one of the things that I like to remind women, particularly at a certain age, and I think I'm 54, I can never quite remember, I always say to David, how old am I? And he always reminds me that I'm the oldest woman he's ever slept with. That's what he likes. <laughs> but I think I'm 54. And the great thing about this age is, is that there are a lot of new chapters opening up. And I keep saying to women, you know, keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. Now with the children being slightly older, Yes, I am so involved in their lives and perhaps possibly too much. But there are lots of other things. I'm learning new ways and new skills and, and there are different doors opening all the time, which I find very exciting. I'm making sure that I'm not standing still, but I am going out there and I'm hunting them down. They're not just coming to me. And that's very important for women as well. Mm. And some of us say to me, you know, but, but you're, you're so lucky because of this or because of that. And of course I am. I, I was born under a very lucky start. I'm very blessed with the start in life that I have. But I do work very hard to make sure that I am continually pushing myself forward and finding opportunities. And actually, you know, sitting on a small island in the middle of nowhere, you would imagine that there were no opportunities that come, but you just have to go out and hunt them down. And I do encourage women not to feel that they're coming to a stage of their lives where they need to slow down. I think we need to be running even faster and finding things that excite us even more. I agree. I couldn't help but notice that at exactly the time that you closed your business, it was only a matter of months before this terrible hurricane hit the Bahamas and had a devastating effect on the community around you. And I want to know, just exactly how you responded and how this changed your life. Again, I think it's about chapters and doors opening, closing and opportunities. And of course, having a devastating hurricane should not be seen in any other way than what it was. It was a devastating hurricane. But it allowed me to venture down a completely different path to what I was doing. And one that I decided I was going to take quite seriously and that I wasn't going to give up on. And that actually, again, it's like stepping stones. I kept traveling down this path. Um, and so from that moment to now, I find myself working in a war zone. And whoever thought that that would be the path? But it was really after the, the hurricane where I looked around and realized, by the grace of God, our island had been saved, but two neighboring islands had been completely decimated. And I wanted to be able to help because I had the time, because I had the energy. And because I had also the contacts that were going to allow me to do my part in this, which was to fundraise and to bring awareness. And so I aligned myself with several different foundations and charities, and I really knew very little about this. Of course, I had done a lot of charitable things in my life, but not aligning myself to one or two particular foundations. I did some homework. I, I tested the waters. I worked for a couple of weeks, one and another, and, and really found my way to Global Empowerment Mission, which was... Um, headed up by an, an, an extraordinary unique man called Michael Capone, who's based in, in, um, in Miami, although of Belgian descent. And, and really I saw from a distance the work he was doing out in Abaco. And I was very intrigued by the idea of global empowerment. And that was the idea that he was empowering teams on the ground. So he wasn't just rushing in as a big American agency, 
fixing the immediate and then leaving again. You know, when you find these disasters, whether it be tornadoes or hurricanes or tsunamis or indeed war, you have to stay. You cannot come in and fix one part of it. There was a sort of one, two, three phase to it all. And I really liked what he was doing. I really understood the method to his madness of we're going to go in, we're going to give immediate need, we're going to give immediate aid. People need phone batteries, they need warm blankets, they need somewhere to stay, they need immediate housing and food and all of the things that come with that incredible first weeks of disaster. And then he says, we need to rebuild communities. People have to come back. Everybody always wants to go back. The refugees I work with in Ukraine, mm. none of them want to leave. They want to be as close as they can. They don't want to go to another country of a foreign language. They want to stay close to their brothers and fathers and sons who are fighting still. Same with the Bahamians. They didn't want to be moved into America. They wanted to go back, even if they had nothing left. So we realized we wanted to get communities back. And it's very important to get schools back up and running. Kids cannot be out of school for too long. We've seen this from the pandemic. We've seen the devastation that children don't even know how to speak because their mouths have been covered for so long they can't even read words coming out of people's mouths. And we understand they can hardly write their names. We can't have that happen again. So after a hurricane, uh, after a war, you need to get schools built again very quickly. Um, and then not just to build a school, but to build it as a hurricane shelter. So now you're doing several things at once. Mm. But of course, all of this takes funding. And it's not that countries like the Bahamas can afford this. And with reason, you know, nobody is prepared for a disaster. Nobody's prepared for war. Nobody anticipates what's going to happen. So it's, I don't always think that the blame should be at the government's feet or the funding should come from the, from the government. We as nations who are richer and more well-off and our neighbours must help other countries in need. And so Global Empowerment has been very life-changing, you say to me, and, and I really like working with them. And I worked my way up from being on the advisory board to now sitting on the executive team. And I take that quite seriously. And I think if I'm going to be a part of the team, then I want to work diligently for that. What do you think he saw in you and what did you think you could bring to that? I think there are enormous pluses and minuses to what I'm perceived to be or, or what somebody who doesn't know me necessarily might see. I think hopefully now I'm earning my place um, on, on these foundations and I also work for Princess Trust. But I, I think to begin with, people may think that, you know, it's a, it's a little lightweight, you know, and that I, that I come from a very privileged, white, safe background. And what do I really know about having boots on the ground in a war zone? What do I really know about relocating um, people who have lost everything? But I, I've, I've learned how to sort of navigate, firstly, someone's first impression of me. Um, I know how to tell them that I work hard. I know how to prove to them that I can work hard and show that I'm in it for the long run. And I'm not just here for the immediate and, and so I think, you know, I think that, that hopefully I, I, I proved myself to Michael and that he was then able to say, right, come on board. So that when three years later, and I've done several missions with them. So I was out in Alabama for tornadoes just after that, that had swept through. I was in um, Miami uh, for Surfside after the tower block collapsed. So I have worked right on the front lines of seeing people in absolute shock, horror and distress of their lives shattering around them. So I know how to emotionally talk to someone who's lost everything. I know how to talk to big donors and say to them, I know where your money is going. We can show you the, the books. We can show you the Excel spreadsheets. We can show you the bank accounts. Everything is transparent. Um, so 
feel confident about where your money is going. I think there's an awful lot of these bigger agencies where people donate and they, they just never see where their money's going. What I like about working with Global Empowerment Mission is they're very nimble as an agency and there is none of those, that corporate layer that sometimes makes people feel very removed. When I went to Ukraine, I could say to Uniqlo, the massive um, uh, clothing company, I said, look, from my experience of having been in Poland, all of these refugees were coming through in their winter clothes. They're now sitting there needing summer clothes and Uniqlo said, fine. I said, I will take some of the clothes. Obviously we had 18 wheeler trucks coming in with massive amounts of clothing for hundreds of thousands of refugees. But I went just for that initial one. I said, I wanted to get into an orphanage with 300 kids who had severely damaged the wall. And I said, we will take some clothes. So Uniqlo could see me on the ground talking to the orphans. They could see me dressing the orphans. They felt and understood where their donation was going. And I think there's some real power in that. Yeah. So I, I like to be able to bring awareness, funding and credibility to, to the agencies that I'm working with. Tell me about your trip to Ukraine recently with your eldest son. So I had already been out to Poland. When you see some of the team going out there, you say, can I really be of use or will I be in the way? Will I yeah. be heavy? And I actually felt very strongly that I could be of use. Michael said, you need to come at once just to be uh, a support to him, to his immediate team around them, uh, to be a physical support, to be loading trucks, unloading trucks, to be able to tell the stories of what Global Empowerment is doing to my audience. And then we get into the trickiness of social media in itself. You know, David, my other half, always says it's like sending a daily postcard. And I love that idea. It's a little bit of news. It's just a little bit of news. It's a bit of information. When you see it like that, you can use it in the way that it needs to be used. So there's a lot of social media that's very manipulative, but if you can manipulate it to the best of what it can be. So I was able to tell the stories when I was in Poland of these women do not have glasses. They cannot see. And then I had hundreds of opticians getting in touch with me saying, we want to send glasses out to these people. We want to help. Mm. I'm then able to help with that. Just one little story that I told on my Instagram. The second trip to Ukraine was very different because we went into the actual war zone. We went into places that had just had, they were unoccupied, but only very recently. You could also smell the gunfire. You could smell the Russians having just left it. Um, and it was incredibly impactful, particularly to my um, 25-year-old son. By now, obviously, I had done quite a lot of seeing desperate people in desperate situations, but he hadn't. And it's a roller coaster of emotion, and I think meaningful for, for people to see that, as long as you're being of use in that. His 25th birthday was coming up, and I, I kind of felt I wanted to be with him, but I didn't want to be out in Los Angeles. And I actually suddenly said to him, you know what? What about being in a war zone? Why don't we go out to Ukraine on your 25th birthday and make this a birthday that you'll never forget? And one where we can actually be doing something for somebody else and looking more outward than inward. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And it brings me back to your maternal grandmother because she, while you've lived a very different life from her, she was someone who was very privileged. She was very wealthy. She led a very grand life. And then in her 40s, when the war came, she started to involve herself in the St. John's Ambulance and the Red Cross and trained and really took a completely different path. And I can't help but think that there is a very interesting parallel running there. I think that that is interesting that you draw a parallel. 
you know, my goodness, my grandmother was exceptional and extraordinary in so many ways that I'm, I'm not at all. But she was very dynamic and I think did have a very frivolous life to begin with. I mean, she came from enormous wealth. And so inevitably, of course, with that came flamboyant weekends and parties and a lifestyle. And I think in a way, she was waiting for a war to happen or it took a war for her to suddenly realise that actually her money, her contacts, her energy, all of that had actually been sort of growing to one point, which was that she could now be of use, incredible use to people on a much, much bigger scale than she'd been doing before. And she did exactly that. But really, really courageous things that I think probably people have forgotten or she doesn't get credit enough for. She was one of the few and first women to really get out to those Japanese prisoner of war camps to tell people the war was over and to actually spread the word because it was taking so long. War had finished in Europe, but it was continuing over in Japan. And she did just remarkable things. And when my grandfather, who was chief of combined operations, and he thought, I need someone beside me who is competent and who I can really fully trust and who will be able to speak to people of all walks of life. And he suddenly thought, I know exactly who, my wife. So they were a very, very incredible couple together. They had very, uh, very strange and complicated marriage, but that didn't stop them from being a very dynamic working partnership. In closing, India, it struck me that with this big shift that you've taken, it seemed to me, without knowing you at all, very interesting that it was last year that you decided to marry David and bring the whole story to fruition, if you like. After being together for 25 years and having five children. Yes, it's really ridiculous, isn't it? We were together for those 25 years and he did indeed ask me to marry him. And I said, no, 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 no. I was obviously going through a fiesta independent woman's stage. And we were very happy as it was. And, and, and the partnership worked and life worked. It was after COVID, I think, you know, during 15 months of lockdown here, um, having all the children together. And they were asking a lot of questions. You know, what was the world going to look like? What was the future going to hold? And I felt that there was a sort of insecurity within them and around a lot of their friends as well. And I thought, what can I do that would would really make the kids feel sort of anchored and secure. And I thought, why don't we get married? Why don't we do something that brings all of our family and friends together and something that feels very traditional? And so Dave and I decided, yes, we were going to do that. And it was actually the most wonderful, wonderful occasion. But I was very conscious that I was a very, very old first-time bride. And that took quite a lot of thinking about well, I think you did it very stylishly. How did your mother feel about it? And my mother's wonderful. If I say, Mom, I'm not going to be married, she says, oh, that's a great idea. And I say, oh, Mom, I'm getting married. She says, oh, darling, that's a great idea. <laughs> it's hard not to admire India Hicks for her determination to dispel the long shadows of her famous grandparents and family once and for all both physically by moving to the Bahamas and, no less tangibly, by driving herself to make her own way in the world on her own terms and in her own right. What I saw in her, having read about the Countess of Mountbatten, India's grandmother, 
was how much the fulfilment India found in her 50s replicates the fulfilment her grandmother eventually found when the war finally gave her great energy and outlet. What did India say? That it took a war for her to suddenly realise that actually her money, her contacts, her energy, all of that had actually been sort of growing to one point, which was that she could now be of use. Both women found that by relieving the suffering of others, the fulfilment that perhaps eluded each of them, living as they did a glamorous social life in the highest circles, finally came within reach when the chance came to do big things for others in ways that only they could do. India was able to pull herself out of the trough caused by the failure of her business in a matter of weeks really to bring the things she had at her fingertips to bear when that hurricane struck and ever since then. In short, she realised she could make people more aware of what was happening. She could fundraise, she could lend her credibility and all that background that she struggled so hard to place firmly behind her in business and lend it to the agency she worked with and believed in. It all began in September 2019, but she hasn't skipped a beat since, and I tip my hat to her for going to Ukraine, which must have been confronting for even the most seasoned of aid workers. That is not to say it isn't still important to her that she keeps her hand in the design world. India is planning a visit to Australia in December to do a charity Art of Living Masterclass, with Australian designers Charlotte Coote and Paul Bangay in Victoria. If you're interested, have a look at our website where we've posted the details. Also, if you're interested in India's family, she and her mother have a podcast called India Hicks and Lady P, which I can recommend. There's also a bonus episode on that podcast feed of India talking to Tina Brown, former editor of The New Yorker, in which they discuss their respective pauses and how they came out of them. It's full of gems. That's it for today. Lots of following up to do if you've enjoyed this episode. There'll be some gorgeous photographs on Instagram to look at too. Thanks to Leonie Marsh for producing the podcast. Until next time, farewell. Farewell.